Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Nicholas Jimenez is the senior editor of Cigar Snob Magazine, a publication focused not only around the sticks themselves, but the culture and personalities that produce and enjoy them. Giving us a brief education on the history and politics of cigars, Mr. Jimenez also infuses some of his own story as it relates to the leaves behind the clouds. In addition, previous In the Corner Back by the Woodpile guest Ricardo Paljosa is in attendance, and whom we will hear pipe up now and then throughout the conversation. So let's talk about your personal story first. How did you first get into cigars? So I smoked my first I was I was sort of a, a prude when it comes to any kind of like substance abuse things when I was a kid, uh, and I guess I sort of still am. So you don't do crack or anything? I don't do any Man, crack. I mean, this, is, this is Miami. I don't do any coke. <laughs> Nobody here does crack. Oh, okay. Um, this is a cocaine town. Sorry, I'm from out of uh, town, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's all fun stuff here. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's no meth, there's no crack. It's all cocaine and ecstasy. Mm-hmm. But I'm not doing any of that. I smoke um, I, I smoke cigars and I drink alcohol. Uh, but I smoked my first cigar at some point in my junior or senior year of high school. And growing up in Miami, uh, we uh, Ricardo and I both graduated from the same uh, the same high school. Uh, different years. Different years. Um, a couple year difference. Right. <laughs> it was uh, not unusual for for high school parties for you know uh, people to be smoking hand rolled cigars, and so I was smoking cigars long before I started drinking, which I, I think I did maybe a week or two before my twenty first birthday in Cuba. Uh, that was my first drink. So anyway, how I got into cigars was was that way, mm-hmm. and then it sort of became. For the next several years, uh, you know, a way to to participate in having a vice at parties right. <laughs> without drinking. A, pr- a prop, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not so much a prop, but you know, yeah, I guess yeah, thing to do. You know, right? Uh, and I did enjoy it. You know, it, right. it's it's an acquired taste. It takes a cigar or two to to get used to it. When you first started smoking cigars, you didn't have a sense of like brands or uh, where they came from or the story behind them. Growing up Cuban in Miami, you have some sense of the story behind some of the cigars. Mm-hmm. So you have some awareness of, for example, who the Fuentes are and who the Padrones are, which is what we're smoking now. And I smoked a lot of this in high school and in college. But certainly not the, the depth that I have now, mm-hmm. uh, especially because there's just so much in premium cigars. When did that click for you? When you go like, oh, man, I want to know about this cigar and what makes it great and all that? I think maybe leaving Miami because in Miami it's there's a lot more brand loyalty in Miami because there's sort of a, a connection to some of the brand's histories and so when you're in a town where even bakeries are carrying Padrones and Fuentes wow. and, and there's a, a sort of sense that, that that's, you know that that's the quality stuff you're not necessarily looking to explore but once you leave Miami and you're in places that don't have those connections to the brands, people, it's sort of like craft beer, mm-hmm. right? So if you're in a beer town, you might be drinking the same two or three beers because the beers that everybody knows and loves are great. Uh, whereas if you grew up in Miami and then you left uh, to, you know, anywhere like a Tennessee or a Texas or whatever, where the craft beer and spirits movements are um, were farther along, you sort of get a little more adventurous because the stuff you know from back home isn't available and because so much other great stuff is. 
Okay. So, so yeah, I would say leaving Miami for college was probably when I started to explore a little more. What do you know of the history of cigars, like where it became like what we know today in that form? Because obviously tobacco has been around for a while in, in, yeah. in, in the North America with the right, right. Native Americans and what have you. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some debate about the, the form, that the, when cigars took their current form, but I, at least from the early 1900s and well before that, you know, cigars haven't changed a whole lot in a very, very long time. Uh, and I, I use that as a marker, maybe because that was like where you see it be, start to become sort of a more global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But even before that, I think cigars in the Caribbean have looked the same way for a very, very long time. And then there's also the issue of marketing them, right? So I think the early 1900s is about where you start to see uh, a certain amount of concern for quality control. So have people been rolling cigars into roughly this shape for a long time, for a lot longer than yeah, yeah. But the the idea of using long filler and whole leaves all the way through a premium cigar, you know, is is maybe a little newer. But even then, I, I think it's it's there with with maybe spirits. You know, spirits have been made the same way for God knows how long. And cigars are, are right in there. Of course, you work at the magazine. You all collect like the old cigar like advertisements and the old symbolism that went around that. Because, like for example, I know that a lot of times where I come from, you know, the old men would buy these you know kind of cheap cigar boxes, which is the kids would end up using to put their school supplies yeah. in later. And I think I remember one. Either someone told me this or it was written on the box, like, you know, rolled on the thighs of beautiful Cuban women. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a... <laughs> right. This woman didn't pay. <laughs> right, right, right. We do a little bit of that collecting at the magazine, so the, the Cigar Snob office has, has some of that stuff. Although I will say that Miami's a tough place to do antiquing because of the humidity. Uh, and so much of the stuff is paper and mm-hmm. tin. Right. I think some of the, the people I know who have the most impressive collections of all this stuff are actually up in the Northeast. Hmm. Um, so there's a guy named, for example, Kurt Kendall, who has a store in New Hampshire, and I'm blanking now on the name of his shop. I should know it. But he's got a cigar brand called 724, which is 7-20-4. Uh, and his store in New Hampshire is where he keeps a lot of his collection of that, um, uh, I believe the term is tabacchiana. Huh. And so his, his tabacchiana collection is supposedly pretty impressive. Uh, and it's funny in in the cigar industry, people kind of geek out about that sort of thing, and mm-hmm. uh, and so Kurt is this uh, you know this guy with a go. He's a you know big guy with a goatee, and he's covered in tattoos, and he goes antiquing every weekend. Mm, <laughs> he knows he knows northeast the northeast to back, uh, antique shops like the back of his hand. Right. Um, and so uh, we have a little bit of that kind of stuff, but I think it's also you know Miami has a different relationship with cigars. It's it's such a part of the culture here, and it's such a daily thing. Mm-hmm. Which is part of why, for instance, Miami, despite being a major market for cigars, doesn't have a lot of cigar bars. Because so much of the way that Miami consumes cigars is what we're doing now, right? On lawn chairs with a drink in your hand in somebody's backyard. And so there's not as much of the pomp and circumstance right. uh, that's tied to, uh, to premium cigars in Miami. Is Florida a cigar-friendly state? Because, you know, obviously New York or California are, are notorious for being real jerks when it comes to any kind of... Well, smoking unless yeah. weed, unless it's weed now. Yeah, but, right. But uh, is, is Florida sensitive to the fact that it's just part of the culture here? I'd say it's if, if you were to take states, it's somewhere in the middle of the pack. Arizona, for instance, is one place that I think is more cigar friendly. The major issue, for example, in Miami, is that you can't have a kitchen running 
while you're allowing smoking. Mm. And so I think there may be a handful of bars that have kitchens running that close at, say, 11 p.m., and then at 11 p.m. you're allowed to light your cigar. Oh, that's cool. Uh, is a little more permissive, and New York has maybe more stringent laws and higher taxes and all that, but there are a few places, just because New York is such a concentration of a market for anything, mm-hmm. there is a little bit more of you know somewhat accessible private clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're a cigar smoker in New York, you're, you're not in terrible shape. The two worst markets that I've been in, uh, the two worst towns, and so I can't speak to the states more broadly, uh, are Boston and Seattle. Mm-hmm. Those are easily the two uh, most restrictive places, the hardest places to smoke. And it doesn't help that the weather's terrible, because at least in a place like Miami, you know, you could have the strictest cigar laws in the world, and you could still do what we're doing now and smoke in a backyard. Right. Uh, in Seattle, that's rough. Noche, mi testigo fiel. Dime, tú que sabes bien. So, obviously, when people think cigars, they often think of Cuba, which is where the best tobacco is grown, or at least it used to be. Can you, and most of those cigar companies were owned by families, generally, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Can you talk about how uh, those families were affected by the Castro's revolution? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the one family that comes to mind is the family that makes the cigars we're smoking now, which are, uh, the that's the Padrones. The Padrones had been growing tobacco and making cigars in Cuba for a very long time. I think Damaso Padron was the first in the Padron line to get involved in tobacco, at least that I'm aware of. And he was growing tobacco and, probably, you know, selling it to known factories in Cuba. And so with the revolution, the Padrones leave Cuba. Uh, eventually, like so many other Cuban families that were in the cigar business and the tobacco business, land in Nicaragua. And so the Cuban Revolution, not only were they affected by exile from Cuba, but a lot of these families end up finding that the soil in Nicaragua is similar enough that they can achieve the profiles they're looking for, and then they end up affected by a Castro-trained revolution with the Sandinistas. <laughs> I was just about to ask that, yeah. <laughs> and so the Padron family was one of the families that actually stuck it out in Nicaragua. Really? And so the Nicaraguan cigar, fa- cigar industry only exists uh, really because of Cubans leaving Cuba and arriving in Nicaragua with Cuban seeds. Uh, and so Hoya de Nicaragua, which is, uh, I believe, the oldest of the Nicaraguan cigar factories, only ends up you know, coming to be because a couple of Cubans showed up with Corojo, which was the uh, strain of tobacco that Cuba was best known for. If you go and visit Esteli, which when the political situation there calms down, I would recommend anyone do, especially if you like cigars and steak. That's a great little rural town in the middle of nowhere to, to go and visit. That's you know one of the one of the cigar capitals of, of the world. They've kept the parts of their facade in their factory that are riddled with bullet holes uh, because the cigar ch- the factory changed hands from the original owners to the uh, the Sandinista government and then back now to uh, it's it's held privately. But just like that, there are all sorts of other families you know that uh, left Cuba at various times. So you've got the Padrones. You've got uh, the Garcias, who are the family behind my father's cigars, and they left more recently. Your uh, father, literally? No, no, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. No, yeah. that, so my father's cigars is run by the Garcia family. So uh, Pepin Garcia had a, fa- had a factory in Little Havana here in Miami, and it was called the Rey de los Habanos, the king of, of the uh, Habanos Cuban cigars. And so when his son Jaime 
left Cuba years later, they made a cigar brand that Jaime made as sort of an homage to my father, and in very typical uh, English as a second language fashion, he named it My Father's Cigars, because he thought nobody would be able to, you know, pronounce, I don't know, <laughs> Mi Papa or Mi Padre, or whatever else he might have thought to name it, he just named it My Father's Cigars, and that became the name of their whole company when they migrated to uh, Nicaragua to expand uh, their production. So yeah, I mean, all throughout, from the Castro Revolution to today, there are still people who are leaving Cuba and arriving in the U.S. or Nicaragua or the Dominican Republic or Honduras and finding a place in the premium cigar industry. Uh, one of the more recent ones that comes to mind, uh, and, and this is still very much a product of, you know, of, of the Castro Revolution and the policies that stem from it, is uh, Hamlet Paredes, who is a blender with Rocky Patel. So Rocky Patel Premium Cigars, which is probably a name that you know, mm-hmm. was started by Rocky Patel, who was an Indian immigrant, who was a Hollywood attorney, uh, and became close with Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these characters and ends up liking cigars and invests mm-hmm. in the cigar industry and uh, sort of revolutionizes the way that cigar sales are done. And so in the last few years, Hamlet, who had been one of the star uh, sort of brand ambassador rollers for Alanos, which is the Cuban cigar monopoly, is told, you're no longer traveling abroad. Uh, and he suspects that it was uh, a, a, a decision that was born out of the jealousy of other rollers because he spoke perfect English, and so people would be requesting him. And, you know, in the Cuban socialism, there's some amount, right, at least a facade of spreading things around evenly, including these trips abroad. But all these uh, factories and, and star- stores, rather, all these retailers and cigar events would be requesting Hamlet. And when he realized, okay, that I've, I've reached the ceiling of how far I can take this because the Castro Revolution isn't allowing me to flourish given the skill set that I'm bringing to this, to this job, uh, he told some retailer friends in London that he was looking for an out. And they said, okay, we'll, uh, we'll figure out who we can put you in touch with. They made a call to Rocky Patel, and Rocky Patel said, yeah, send him my way. And Hamlet, without knowing who Rocky Patel even was, said, if he was that quick, I trust him, and I will leave. So he leaves Cuba the first chance he gets and ends up with Rocky Patel. And now there's a cigar that bears his name made at Rocky Patel's factory in Nicaragua. So even my point is that even today, right, it's not even a legacy thing. There are families as old as the Padrones um, or even the Fuente family, which is more of a turn-of-the-century uh, Cuban family that started in Key West and moved to Tampa. But they have their own, you know, all of these families are in some way or another affected by the Cuban Revolution and the impact that it had on the cigar industry. In my uh, 47 years, I've had maybe three Cuban cigars, and every time someone gave me like, oh, like, oh man, here you go, man, this is it, and, and I've always been disappointed. I get a sense, or maybe this is just me projecting, that the Castro regime has ruined the quality that Cuban cigars used to be. Am I right, or am I just getting the wrong ones? No, I mean, I think that's... So, I mean, I'll, I'll qualify this by saying that I wasn't smoking cigars before the revolution, right? So yeah. I can only... <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm taking people's word for it that, uh, that cigars smoked a little differently mm-hmm. before. But yeah, and, and I don't think that's just isolated to Cuban cigars. I think the Castro Revolution has had the same effect on everything it's touched. But in the case of cigars specifically, there's the added factor that they know they have such a uh, dominant market share outside of the U.S., mm-hmm. right? So if you're the Cuban cigar monopoly, 
you're not only in control of everything that's coming out of Cuba, and so there's a sort of illusion of like, oh, all these different Cuban brands, and which one is the best one? I mean, there are, it's not just Partagas that's made at the Partagas factory that you might visit across the street from the capital, the old capital in Havana. There's all sorts of stuff being made there, and they'll just sort of throw whatever they need to throw in there. If you're selling to Europe and Latin America, where there's already this sort of mystique and this sort of dismissiveness toward Nicaraguan and Dominican and Honduran cigars, then you can do whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. You know, you can use under-fermented tobacco. You can not go as far as factories elsewhere in the world might go in quality control and throwing away dud cigars. Mm-hmm. And so I've spoken to retailers who own stores, for instance, in, uh, in Paris and in Toronto. And the, the thing, and I, haven't, I don't think that we've seen the Cuban cigar industry respond to this yet, but the thing that has most threatened Cuban cigars is American bloggers. The reason being that all these Americans are blogging about Nicaraguan cigars. And they're blogging about everything from the quality of them to the profile. And they're getting Parisians and Canadians mm. and Londoners and all these people curious about these cigars mm. that suddenly, can I curse here? Is this, is this a thing? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, okay, these cigars aren't shit. So if all these Americans are smoking this and they're satisfied, and some of them are saying that they smoke them side by side with Cuban cigars and like them better, now I'm curious. And so in the 2000s, maybe late 90s, all this online media started to sort of permeate Europe, that was coming from the U.S., started to permeate Europe and, and the rest of the Americas. And so you end up with uh, retailers in these cities, you know, telling people like me, you know what, 10 years ago, maybe I carried, you know, 10% of my humidor was non-Cuban uh, because I just wanted people to know. Mm-hmm. But now I'm, I'm seeing the demand and people are asking for it and maybe... 30, 40, 50, 60% of my humidor is non-Cuban. That's not the norm. That Those are some outliers. But still, for a for a for an old tobacconist in Paris to be carrying anywhere near 25% non-Cuban cigars would have been unheard of uh, 10, 15 years ago. One of the things that I think needs to be understood about this whole process in Cuba, I never refer to it as a revolution, I call it the communist takeover, is that it, in the name of progress and in the name of all this nonsense that well, it was like a pipe dream at best, what it produced was a, a, a throwback, a deep throwback to a medieval, uh, almost pre-modern, let's put it that way, a pre-modern way of doing things. So suddenly, an industry like the cigar industry, which had been famously very much about free individuals. I mean, Fernando Ortiz, the great Cuban, the founder of anthropology and sociology and all this kind of stuff in Cuba, wrote his famous uh, treatise, The Cuban Counterpoint of Tobacco and Sugar, which is a seminal essay. And he counterpoints, among other things, the fact that sugar was a slave product. You needed huge plantations with slaves cutting the cane and doing everything. Whereas the cigar was a completely different phenomenon. Tobacco was grown by free men, and it became a connoisseurship. Sugar is sugar. You can't really discern uh, a pound of sugar uh, made in Cuba from one made in Brazil, from one extracted from beets in the Ukraine. It's sugar. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no tasting really involved in this. Right. Whereas, of course, cigars are the wine of the Caribbean. So when this medievalist mindset takes over and it produces, it destroys the modern meritocracy, which had been flourishing, especially in the cigar industry forever, 
uh, you're no longer rewarding people who know or who, you know, exercise a more imaginative approach to how to produce and refine their product. No, what you, what you wind up rewarding are the regime lackeys. You know, uh, factories and plantations are handed over to whoever the regime feels is the loyal person to, more than anything, not just watch the product, but watch the workers. So, of course, it's going to produce a drastic decline um, uh, in, in, in everything. This is not a progressive I mean, modern American progressives love to talk about the experiments, uh, the Cuban experiment, as one particular progressive once referred to it in, in conversation with me. And uh, this this is a, a a throwback to I will put you in a position of influence because I can trust you because you're my you're my yes person in this, and that basically destroyed modern life in Cuba. Ay, mira, nena linda, qué lindo, qué lindo mi son, te lo aseguro, cosita buena, que si tú bailas mi son, te va a gozar. I think it's probably, you know, since you brought up the cigars being the wine of the Caribbean and, and not being able to discern, say, one sugar from another sugar, I, I imagine that your listenership is not necessarily uh, all cigar smokers, and so it's probably worth doing like a quick overview of how cigars are made because that may sound odd to the person who doesn't smoke cigars, who doesn't know how they're produced. So you've got your your tobacco plant and it's not a simple matter of just harvesting the tobacco plant uh, and all of its leaves and then rolling them up into a cigar. You're harvesting by priming. And so there's this constant monitoring of the plant while it's still in the ground. So you're going and you're taking the first priming from the bottom and that's going to be uh, your your first priming will be the the lightest and easiest to smoke tobacco, the least oily tobacco in the bunch. And so over the course of months, you're priming from the bottom up. And every time you come back, you're coming back to a plant where there are fewer leaves but the same size root system. And so that same size root system, by the time you're done, is delivering the same amount or the same volume of nutrients to a very small number of even smaller leaves. And so that is what in, in cigar parlance is called ligero. And so that's going to be your really strong sort of ass-kicker tobacco. Mm-hmm. Just managing the harvest process is radically different from sending a bunch of people out to cut sugarcane because you're, the timing is so important. If you're a day or if you're a day off, you're dealing with a radically different product. Once you've primed all this tobacco, and harvested it, it goes into curing barns, and that's where it goes from green to brown, all the chlorophyll and other stuff leaves the cigar. That's its own process. And so you're dealing with this totally natural process where the heat, especially in the Caribbean, is regulated just by opening and closing windows. So you've got this natural heat and humidity in the Caribbean and these barns that are out, usually adjacent to the farms. Or You're moving that into fermentation rooms, and so the fermentation is just a matter, and there's all of this science that goes into this, but the fermentation, as with so much other fermentation, is, is heat affecting the sugars in the plant. And so in this case, you're not actually applying heat. You're just putting it in piles, and the sheer weight of the tobacco is producing heat that you could fry an egg in in the middle of this pile of tobacco. And so you're constantly rotating the tobacco, and you're constantly tasting the tobacco, uh, to then remove it from this pile, or what's called a pilón in Spanish, uh, at the appropriate time. 
And then from there, you go into an aging process where sometimes you're smoking cigars where the tobaccos are aged six months, but it can be up to, I mean, you smoke cigars where the tobaccos are aged up to 10, 15 years. And so imagine, I would say that it's even more labor intensive than wine because in wine, you're dealing with a fluid. And so it's a little bit easier to do things uniformly. Here, you're dealing with all these solid leaves. And then not only that, but you're blending them into the cylinder and you're not chopping it up. All of, if you were to cut open uh, a, a handmade cigar, you'd find that the leaves run from the top of the cigar to the bottom of the cigar. And yet you're doing all of this in such a way that they're arranged and they're fermented and they're aged so that the cigar is burning evenly from top or from bottom to top, despite the fact that you're dealing with different strains of tobacco, with different ages of tobacco, with different oiliness. And so the whole process is this very, not only labor-intensive, but you cannot be an idiot making cigars. <laughs> you have to know what the hell you're doing. This is a, I, I could never even, I would never come close to saying that I knew what the hell I was doing. I would never come close to doing this. Right. Just rolling the cigar, let alone blooding the cigar and knowing what to put in it. And so when you're dealing with something that complicated... Yes, it's difficult to execute it perfectly, but there's also so much opportunity to cut corners, which is what the revolution does with everything, or what the communist takeover, as Ricardo put it, has done with literally everything. And so cigars are both Cuba's sort of biggest uh, export, not only in terms of, or luxury goods export, in terms of uh, just sheer uh, dollars coming into the island, but also as far as its identity. Maybe rum, you know, but, but cigars, I think, are, are the thing that most people would say, like, okay, that's where Cuba's supposed to be dominant. And yet it's also the area that's given Cuba, or the Cuban government, the most opportunity to capitalize while cutting corners. Because you can cut corners at all of these parts of the process. To the point that there are, again, retailers in, in all of these cities outside of the U.S. who've told me part of the problem is that because Cuba have for so long has had such a dominant position in the market in whatever this person's city might be the cigar consumer in that town or in that country might have just come to assume oh well the normal thing is for me to buy a box of cigars and for me to have to touch up with my lighter half the cigars in the box well that's not the case when you buy even a garbage Nicaraguan cigar mm -hmm. right if you buy a box of okay Nicaraguan cigars you're maybe doing that with one or two of them and if you so much as tweet that you had a problem with some of these cigars, they're getting back in touch with you to send you new cigars. The Cuban government is not emailing you unexpectedly right. to see if you'd like replacement right. cigars. Um, and so, yes, to your to to the point that we've been making, you know, the, I I think that's worth bringing up is that there there's part of the issue is that there's so many places to cut corners in cigars mm -hmm. because there's so many steps. There's a story or probably a myth surrounding John F. Kennedy and the embargo and, and Cuban cigars. you want to relay that one? I've heard the story a million times, and I'm bad at remembering the details of the story, but the, the basics of it are that anticipating the embargo, uh, he went and had somebody place a giant order of Cuban cigars. And I forget what the number was supposed to have been, although it's been probably a, a bullshit number anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least that that happened. Right. If I mean, people are still placing, you know, uh, uh, under the table orders for cigars now. Uh, but yeah, the Kennedy went ahead and stocked up before he kept the rest of us from stocking up right. on Cuban cigars. <laughs> is the is the basics of it. Marcina, 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 Marcina.
mind sharing your own family's history because you're Cuban, right? Yep. Uh, talk about their plight, their experience. My mother was born in Miami to uh, Cuban-born parents. So her mother and her father, uh, I, I believe, met in the States. But I, I never knew my maternal grandfather. But my grandmother came to the States when she was 16. And her husband, who, for all I know, you recognize the name, Virgilio Perez, her husband's father had been Minister of Agriculture. Oh, so I hadn't even made that connection. But yeah, I guess I do have that much of a cigar connection, too. He wasn't a cigar person, but I'm sure he dealt with cigar people. Sure. Uh, had been Minister of Agriculture uh, in Cuba uh, at some point in the 50s and was also a senator. My father was born in Sierra de Avila, which is, uh, at the time, was part of the Camagüey province, which is a central province in Cuba. Um, and he's one of ten siblings, one of whom was born in Miami. Half of them roughly came to the States on Operation Peter Pan. So this was the largest exodus of unaccompanied minors in the Western Hemisphere. His father, so my father's father, was a uh, journalist, journalism teacher, and radio station owner in Cuba. So he owned what at the time, I believe at the time, was called Radio Cuba, and now is Radio Surco. Or maybe vice versa. I forget now. I'm blanking. So, yeah, I mean, my, my family, my oldest uncle, my dad's oldest brother, uh, was roughly 18 years old at the time of the uh, Castro communist takeover. To stick with, to use consistent language through this interview. He had to go and get his son out of imprisonment for protesting the Batista regime and then get himself out of prison for his protests against the Castro uh, revolution. And so um, there's a, I don't want to say a pride, but there's a, it, it makes it easier to have all these conversations when I get to say that both regimes jailed members of my family. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to do the whole, well, we were, we were Castroites until, you know, right. until we realized we shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, the uh, half of, um, of my father's siblings came that way. The older half that my grandparents were comfortable sending on Operation Pedro Pan. And then my father, who was on the younger half, ended up reuniting with my, uh, with all of his siblings after my grandparents left Cuba uh, through Mexico. So they went to Mexico first, where they were for uh, a, a short period of time. My grandfather had a dentist friend there, so the dentist friend uh, who had been, who had gone there from Cuba uh, taught him to make dentures. And so for my whole life, my grandfather had a print shop out of his living room and uh, totally illegal, unlicensed uh, denture-making <laughs> and installation facility in the back of his house. And so we were all just sort of waiting on pins and needles to see him on the 6 o'clock news in handcuffs for making the wrong person fake teeth. Making a yeah. back alley denture <laughs> and he And he kept all of, the, all of the materials that he was putting in people's mouths in empty whiskey bottles. Uh, <laughs> And and so really big drums, uh, yeah, yeah. There were, and then in his when he was uh, too old to keep doing that, he took up. I should get you. Oh, your collection will look so much more impressive when I get you all of these pretty little sculptures that he made with the uh, with the unused tooth making material. Uh, <laughs> he was he was very proud of these I am things. Salivating. <laughs> I am also the only member of my family who was both born in the U.S. and kicked out of Cuba. Okay, so I was, we'll tell that story. I was in Cuba uh, four times, if you count the time I was told to leave. So I went three times between 2008 and 2009 
uh, on democracy promotion licenses from different organizations. At the time, you had to have a license for your specific trip. Mm -hmm. And that particular category of travel, which the category still exists. So if you travel to Cuba, you're supposed to have your the itinerary or the agenda of your travel mm -hmm. fall into one of a number of categories. But before the Obama administration, you had to have a license specific to that trip. And that was for uh, activities that fell under a certain category. Uh, and this was the one category that you don't just show up in Havana and say, well, here's my license for promoting democracy in Cuba. Mm. So I would go through Cancun uh, or some other uh, place and go to Cuba. And I guess by the time I went the fourth time, they'd had enough of me. And uh, when I landed, they told me, get back on the plane that brought you. And, uh, and I ended up back in Cancun within a few hours. Uh, uh -huh. So, uh, so yeah, so I have not been to Cuba since 2009 when I was doing all sorts of subversive uh, kind of revolutionary things. So can you, are you, can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. What you were doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I used to not talk about it because I was afraid that it would jeopardize the people you future were helping. Well, you no, know, the future trips of mine. Uh, because the people I was helping were very open about all of their dissident activity. It was more just jeopardizing my ability to go and support them in that, and now I can't. So. Right. But over the course of the three trips where I did make it in and out, um, it was everything from uh, research on uh, internet access in Cuba. And so my, my favorite moment of that was that kind of just posing as a curious tourist who wanted to learn as, about university life. Uh, and then, of course, I drove the conversation in the direction of internet access. I ended up sitting in the office of the president of the of the, what would the translation be for the La, la Federación de, Estu yeah, the, La FEU. Yeah, of, the, of the, the Federation of University Students. Not realizing that he was talking to somebody who had already, who was on the board of an organization that had been on a, on a Cuban Ministry of the Interior slideshow as a cyber terrorist group. Wow. <laughs> so that was a good time. Uh, and then I, I met with uh, independent journalists like um, uh, Guillermo Fariñas and Joanny Sanchez. Uh, Yoni Sanchez oh, yeah. was on, sure. yeah, she was a, a Time 100 Most Influential at some point right. in there. Um, and a bunch of other dissidents like Antunes and, and lesser known people who were in more rural provinces, mm -hmm. more rural areas. Um, so, so, yeah, it was all sorts of stuff like that. If you don't mind, talk about what's, what are their goals, what are they trying to do, the, the underground. And you'll get a million different opinions on this uh, if you talk to uh, 500 different Cubans. You don't even need a million of them. <laughs> but uh, part of the problem is that there are no unifying goals. And forget the Cuban underground. There, there, there's nothing really unifying Cuban groups here in Miami. And so that's part of the issue. I think if you talk to anybody who's involved in any kind of dissident activity, they'd all like to see a radically different government. Sure. How does one go about that? I assume that they're trying to lay the groundwork for new Cuba. What are some of the methods that you've seen or are aware of? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much. I mean, I, so I've, I've dealt, for example, with people who were signatories on what was called the Varela Project. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you know about this. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the few people who I would say became a friend during these trips that I saw him multiple times on multiple trips uh, and, and corresponded with him, and he, you know, we had friends in common, was uh, Harold Cepero, and he was the other Cuban who died uh, with uh, Ovaldo Payá, who oh, founded yeah, the Varela yeah, Project. Sure. So I met Harold Cepero uh, when he was a seminarian. He was a Catholic seminarian, and by the time I saw him the second time, he had dropped out of that whole process to give more of his time to, uh, to his dissident activities. And I met him with his best friend, who uh, is now living in Kansas City. And so they had both been expelled from their university uh, for having signed the Varela Project, which was basically just a, a, a petition for constitutional reforms that was making an attempt to, however sincere or not, make these reforms 
according to the rules set forth in the Constitution. And when I say sincere or not, I mean part of the objective was, okay, we all know that this government is not going to allow us to do this, but we want to play by their rules and show that even when you play by their rules, they just right. you know, uh, wipe their asses with, <laughs> with your petition. Okay. Uh, and so they, they collected, is it fair to say, several times as many signatures as they needed? Oh, yeah, yeah. Certainly more than they needed, but maybe multiples of what they needed. And so two, two friends of mine from these trips are from that. But I also know uh, I, I was able to meet uh, members of a band called Porno para Ricardo. Sure, Porno yeah. for Ricardo, yeah. So, for you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Porn just for you, Ricardo. Just for you. I was able to meet Ciro Rodriguez, uh, who is the bassist uh, with the group, and his girlfriend, uh, at least at the time, I don't know whether they're still together, Claudia Cadelo, who was a, a blogger and who, when Joanny Sanchez started sort of like a blogger academy, she was like one of the star students and mm-hmm. won an award for her blog and all that. So yeah, I mean, I, I met a, a wide variety of people who were trying to do things uh, in in a whole bunch of different ways, whether through art or uh, or rock music or uh, you know these more like uh, political uh, petition sort of means. So there's a handful of cigar magazines out there, and they've, they've been there for a while. And I, I don't want to step on any toes here, but the one I, the first one I oh, remember that's fine, yeah. was like Cigar Aficionado. So you were for Cigar Snob. Correct. Um, why did they feel the need to become a magazine? What, what, what's their take? Or Yeah, so I, I mean, at the risk of, so I, I uh, started working with Cigar Snob in 2013. Uh, so it's been uh, just over six years, and Cigar Snob started in 2006. I'll do my best to sort of relay the story that I've heard from our publisher and right. owner, Eric Calvino, so many times. But it was basically that Cigar Aficionado... Cigar Aficionado comes, into, uh, comes onto the scene in the 90s during what everybody in the cigar industry calls the boom. Right. Um, and so this was where there was all sorts of disposable income in the U.S., and there was an opportunity for cigars to sort of become an in vogue thing. Uh, and Aficionado which is run by Marvin Shankin, who also publishes Wine Spectator and maybe Beer Advocate. Uh, I forget now. Uh, but Shankin Publications does, uh, you know, has several titles. Steps in uh, and publishes this magazine. And, and the thing that he did that, you know, is not a, a totally off-the-wall idea, but was to make sure that he always had a celebrity smoking a cigar on the cover. And so that brought cigar smoking into the mainstream and made it more of a status symbol than it already was and sort of helped it shed its uncool... Uh, you know, old men in a leather couch. Right, the, uh, the Monopoly man smoking Right, cigars. exactly. <laughs> Why he uh, presses the poor. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. and so suddenly you had Demi Moore and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. and Michael Jordan yeah. on the, the covers the, of these magazines. The Sopranos, that was a famous right, cover. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Gandolfini, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, James Gandolfini was on the cover. Uh, everybody and their mother was on the cover smoking cigars, yeah. even, if they, even if they had to fake that they ever smoked cigars right. before. Uh, which is fine. Uh-huh. But, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the role that cigars play in the culture in Miami, and uh, our publisher, Eric Calvino, who grew up here in Miami, he was born in Cuba, they were, his family was in Spain briefly, and then uh, came to Miami, would read Aficionado uh, and find, okay, this magazine is not really speaking to me. Uh, I have a different relationship with cigars. Uh, and so he sort of set out to create a magazine that was more in line with his experience of what cigars mm-hmm. meant culturally or just in his own you know, leisure time. And I noticed politically, Cigar Aficionado always took a more 
middle of the road. They, it seemed like they weren't trying to offend any, any, yeah, I mean, any middle party. Of, yeah. yeah, middle of the road. Well, a party on, on what issue? You mean just like a... Well, the, the embargo. They, they were, yeah. I think, I mean, for middle, the, middle for of the road the, is... They were for getting rid of the embargo. Yeah, middle yeah, of the road yeah, is generous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Middle of the road is a generous yeah, way to put it. Well, I was yeah. trying to be nice, but okay. Yeah, yeah. But that's fine. I mean, they, but, and they're not shy about their position. I mean, right. Marvin well, Schenken right. publishes at least annually right. in their Cuba issue about how opposed he is to the embargo. So right. it's not like I'm, you know, uh, outing him or For sure. Um, so, and actually, that's how I ended up with Cigar Snub. So I was living in Wisconsin at the time, and I was introduced by uh, one of my best friends who had been doing some marketing and event work for Cigar Snub to Eric, our publisher. And Eric had been approached by a number of people who were uh, interested in having an alternative ad spend to the Cigar Aficionado Cuba issue. Mm -hmm. At the time that he was being asked about this, he didn't really have a way to turn it around really quickly without it throwing off his whole schedule because they had their editorial calendar mm -hmm. set. And so uh, he was introduced to me and my having a, having a background in journalism and Cuba things he asked me whether I would be willing to edit a an issue for that year, so sort of like take his editor-in-chief hat That's for an cool. issue. Yeah. Uh, it didn't pan out. Oh. I, I think mainly because, you know, it's one thing to do a Cuba issue every year where you're doing, you know, a Cuba travel story and hear a bunch of Cuban cigars. You can only do the screw the Castro's issue so many times. Right. Uh, and so... We were introduced, I did some freelance work for the magazine, and then when I finally moved back to Miami in 2013, uh, I, I told him, hey, you know, I'm coming back to Miami, and it turned out that he was looking for somebody to take uh, a lot of the editorial load off of his shoulders. But, but that relationship only began because of Aficionado's huh. take on Cuba and how dissatisfied and how unhappy uh, a lot of the cigar industry, which is dominated by Cuban exiles, right. Uh, that who don't agree right. with aficionados take sure uh, so yeah that, that's how all that began in writing for the magazine what are some of your highlights some of the adventures some of the people you've gotten to meet yeah so I mean uh, uh, we're pretty open about not being a cigar nerd magazine you know and, and there are those and especially online there are a lot of very nerdy publications which there's a place for and which I read uh, but I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say that I'm somebody who uh, you know is is about to go uh, write for any of those things. And so it's more about the people that you're meeting while you're smoking. I think it's, it's pretty incredible uh, how much more willing somebody is to give you an interview when you tell them, oh, and by the way, while we're talking, we can smoke and drink. Uh -huh. And so some of the, the names that come to mind of just people who, if I was working for a magazine of this size, because we publish maybe 60,000 copies every other month, which is a respectable size magazine, but is not a magazine that, for instance would otherwise have put me uh, in a one-on-one -on -one interview for several hours with uh, Ed Reed, who played for the Ravens and mm -hmm. is uh, about to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, with Jason Taylor, with Cedric the Entertainer, with Arturo Sandoval, who's a multiple-time yeah. Grammy-winning uh, uh, trumpet player. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's that. And, and then even within the cigar industry, so you worked at a cigar shop. I mean, there, yeah. there are a lot of characters in the cigar industry oh, who yeah. come from all sorts of different places and sure. backgrounds. And so, uh, for me, that's the highlight. It's, it's nice that I get to smoke cigars, but honestly, if... If I could get away with doing the same thing and only smoking, you know, three or four things in my rotation, I'd be perfectly happy. I'm not, I don't need to be exploring everyone's portfolio right. from front to back. How is Cigar Snob adapting to the online world? Because, you know, print magazines are having a hard time. A lot are just going under. Some we thought they would be there forever or, you know, they're just closing. So how's Cigar Snob navigating all that? 
Uh, it hasn't really been much of an issue for Cigar Snob because what's still profitable is anything that's either hyper-local or in a pretty narrow niche. So, for example, we're in Miami, and the most profitable part of the, of the Miami Herald is the neighbor section. And the only reason for that is that if you're an advertiser, you have a pretty clear sense of who's picking up that physical publication. And that's still the case for cigar magazines, right? In the same way that Wine Spectator can still sell ads, because you know some things about the average income level or education or uh, you know, other sorts of demo stuff about wine drinkers. And the same thing is true with cigar smokers. And even more targeted because cigar smoking, uh, and this is maybe less and less true, but still pretty uh, overwhelmingly male. So you know a lot about who's reading Cigar Snob magazine. Plus, we usually have uh, a woman who's not wearing a whole lot of clothes on the cover. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, so, so there's that. And, and so it, it is uh, as much a men's magazine as you can be without being explicit about it. Sure. So yeah, it, it's still profitable. That's not to say... So I wouldn't say that we've been affected by the Internet, uh, but there are things that we're you know, capitalizing on now. So we talked earlier before we started recording about the podcast. Mm-hmm. So we have a podcast, and, uh, but more than anything, I think what, what that sort of thing does is that it gives a publication like ours a way to keep smaller companies in the fold as we grow. So as the magazine grows, we're uh, inevitably pricing out mom-and-pop uh, cigar manufacturers or, or small boutique brands and having a website and a podcast gives them a way to stay in as customers because that's going to be less expensive than advertising in a, in a six times a year print magazine in spite of what you just said about not nerding out I'm going to throw this <laughs> sure yeah, yeah. When I worked at a cigar store, the Cigar Club, Goodlesville, Tennessee, shout yeah. out. These guys used to fantasize about one day the communist government was going to be overthrown. Cuban cigars were going to go back to where they were. But the, the thing that hadn't existed before the takeover was the phenomenon of the Connecticut wrapper. Right. What's your take on that? And explain to folks why the Connecticut wrapper is, is special and why it didn't happen in Cuba, that type of thing. Yeah, so... Um the C- Connecticut is known for two strains of tobacco primarily. So one of them is Connecticut Broadleaf. And Connecticut Broadleaf is uh, less known primarily because seasoned smokers are smoking it. Uh, Connecticut Broadleaf is uh, very oily. It, it's, got, it's, it's got a little bit of sweetness, which might sound odd to a person who doesn't smoke cigars, but there's a sweetness to Connecticut Broadleaf. But it's also very peppery. And so uh, if you're a new smoker, you don't want to be smoking a Connecticut Broadleaf Cigar. It's also generally in Connecticut, harvested without the priming that we talked about earlier in the in the conversation. So you're stock cutting very often uh, Connecticut tobacco, and then curing the whole plant uh, while it's still on the stock. The strain that Connecticut is better known for is Connecticut Shade, which is called that because it's grown under the shade of cheesecloth in mm-hmm. Connecticut, and so it's a very uh, mild cigar. It's you know you're going to get. Uh, a lot of wood and maybe some creamy notes from Connecticut Shade wrappers. There's also Connecticut tobacco, the, the strain. Uh, so the strain takes its name from Connecticut because that's where it, it comes from, uh, grown in Ecuador, uh, primarily because of the cost of labor and the cost of maintaining that shade because Ecuador has constant cloud cover, and so you don't need to maintain that cheesecloth shape. I, I think that whenever whatever change happens that opens Cuba up to the American market, I think a lot of people are anticipating that 
there's going to be this surge of Cuban cigars right out of the gate. I don't know that that's the way that it plays out. I think that I think that's what happens immediately, and then the renewed interest in cigars is going to mean that people walk into uh, retail humidors, smoke their first Cuban, they're sold a couple of other things that aren't Cuban, and they realize like, oh, these Cubans actually are not all that much better. What I am more interested in seeing is how it affects the Cuban tobacco farmer, because all of a sudden people are going to be able to blend with Cuban tobacco in Nicaragua and in Honduras and in Mexico and in the Dominican Republic. Plus, those farmers are still people who I think, by and large, take some pride in their work because you have a sense of, okay, this is my land and I am producing something worth producing here. It's very different from being a roller in a factory where your main objective is to steal the best stuff and sell it on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, but if you're growing Cuban tobacco... And it's already of a good quality, and the reason that it doesn't end up in a good cigar is because of how it's processed after the fact by third, fourth, and fifth parties. What does that mean for you? Because now your product is immediately super valuable to people all over the world who want to roll it into their cigars and wrap it in Connecticut tobacco or wrap it in Mexican San Andres wrapper or whatever else you're you're uh, putting with and around it. I'm, it's not as sexy as, you know, we're all going to be smoking Cohibas, <laughs> but I think whenever some kind of a change happens the more significant change will be in how people outside of Cuba uh, have access to that tobacco and what they do with it. What's a cigar that's out there that you're excited about that you want to tell people about at, at risk of offending all the wonderful cigars that oh, are out there? But. So I'll give you a two-part answer. Okay. Uh, I, I always tell people that I won't name a favorite cigar, but if I had to smoke cigars made by one company for the next five years and commit to it, I'd be smoking Padrones, uh, which is what we're smoking now, coincidentally. And that's mainly because uh, Padrones, they age the hell. The, the Padrones age the hell out of their tobacco. Uh, and so they are full in flavor, but they're very low in nicotine. And so you can, kind of like if you're a beer drinker, there's the term sessionable. Hmm. These are sort of sessionable cigars. You can you can sit and smoke for a long time without it giving you that lightheaded kind mm-hmm. of woozy feel, but mm-hmm. they also don't taste like nothing. There's a, lot, there's a lot there. Because you asked in terms of what I'm excited about, there's very little new in the cigar world lately because of FDA regulation mm-hmm. or, or the, the threat of FDA regulation, which we can get into if you want. But I'll say uh, the most exciting company maybe is Plasencia. So Plasencia for a long time, they've, they've been around a long time, and they're the, the Plasencia family, who also have a connection to Cuba, uh, are some of the biggest growers of tobacco in Central America, but it was only more recently that they uh, put out their own lines of, of premium cigars. Mm-hmm. And unlike a lot of new companies, they're, they're sort of a new cigar brand without being a new company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you walk into a retail humidor, there are some stores where half or more of the cigars in there have something grown by the Placencias in them. And what that means is that they have been sitting on this enormous stockpile of very well-aged tobaccos so that from one day to the next they were able to release what Cigar Snob ended up calling it Cigar of the mm-hmm. Year so it's the Placencia Alma Fuerte but everything Placencia makes is super solid and it's exciting to see a new player that can be counted on to put out that kind of quality year over year. You have a strong opinion on Swisher Sweets? 
Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have any on Swisher Sweets. Swisher, so Swisher is an interest. So, really? so okay. speaking was, of the FDA, yeah, yeah. So because of the FDA, uh, so the the thing with the FDA, very briefly, is yeah. that during in the in the last uh, year of the Obama administration, the FDA came out and said that they would apply the regulations that they've been applying to cigarette products to any and every tobacco product, defining tobacco products as broadly as not just including hand rolled cigars, but also vape products, pipes, uh, all sorts of things. So because of this, you had sort of the, the specter of, of uh, having to comply with all this stuff. And they've pushed back the effective date over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't really had the effect yet that people are afraid it will have. But a lot of uh, European companies and uh, we'll call them like big tobacco in the U.S. have been buying up or attempting to buy up smaller uh, premium cigar companies. And so Swisher now owns Drew Estate, which makes things like Liga Privada Number no. 9. Wow. Um, and also acid. So acid is made by Drew Estate, and it's an infused cigar. Uh, they don't like using the word flavored. So mm-hmm. it's an infused cigar, and it is the single best-selling long filler cigar. It's a decent cigar. Just I don't like the infusion, but mm-hmm. it, it is. If you removed the infusion, it would be a decent cigar mm-hmm. uh, for me. And so yeah, Swisher is a player in the premium that's, cigar space. That's now. hilarious. I admit that yeah. as a joke. It's like uh, Jay Cortez. Jay yeah. Cortez uh, is a big Belgian company, mm-hmm. and they uh, now own Oliva Cigar. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Oliva, you know, for the longest time, uh, well, it still is a, a great producer of premium cigars out of Nicaragua. But uh, and so there's there's a good amount of that too. Okay, Philly Blunts. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I, this guy has a story for everything. I, I, I don't know much about these. I will say so, and I, and I haven't smoked these either. But I will say of the of the the gas station cigars, right. <laughs> the one that cigar makers will tell you is the one, if, if you're in a pinch and you got to buy one of them, uh-huh. you buy Backwoods. Backwoods, yeah, backwoods actually is good. Yeah, that's, that's my fishing cigar. Rustic, yeah. rustic looking yeah. cigar, but they're decent. You yeah, know, they're great. They're decent, yeah. well-aged tobaccos, yeah. and the, yes. it's, it's a good quality thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, thank you for your time. Yeah, sure. Thank you. If you're still in a mood, Cabano, you should give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile number 193 a listen, which features Bay of Pigs veteran Bill Muir. Also, Ricardo Paujosa was a guest back on 189 and had a lot to say not only about Cuba, but Latin American art as well. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.